Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word. Help us to learn and grow. Help us to find something in this text to take away for our lives this day. Amen. As you've heard now a few times, we're in the middle of our first summer sermon series, and it's from the book of Genesis. We're using the lectionary texts for these weeks, meaning these are the same texts that are available to churches throughout the world for this Sunday. In some churches, each of the lectionary texts, and there are four of them usually, are read every Sunday. And in other churches that follow the lectionary, the focus is always on the Gospels. Every few months, I tend to share with you all a little background information about the lectionary as I think it helps us to be reminded, or for some of you, you're learning for the first time what the lectionary is, that this lectionary that we use, this collection of scripture, and we use this along with most major Christian denominations, it's, it's called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's very similar. It's actually almost identical to the Roman Catholic lectionary with a few differences around certain holidays. These lectionaries are all on a three-year cycle, and these cycles are designed to help us follow some threads or themes throughout the texts and throughout the three years. Now, it's interesting to know that the lectionary we use, it's not very old. It's been modified a few times recently, but it originated in the Roman Catholic Church coming out of the Second Vatican Council, known as Vatican II, in the mid-1960s. I do think, though, that it's a beautiful thing to remember that as much as Christian churches are different throughout the world and have some conflicting values and understandings of God, the scripture we use in worship on a given Sunday is being studied and looked at and proclaimed by other Christians throughout the world at the same time. And so when I was planning worship some months ago and looking at the texts that were following Pentecost, I was originally very excited to see these Genesis texts, and I jumped on the idea of a sermon series taking us through them. I had this idea well before our worlds changed in March with the pandemic and well before our national conscience was rocked by the latest significant struggles against racial injustice. I mentioned this background about the lectionary for a couple of reasons. It seems to me that there's an unintended thread that seems to be woven through these sermons, my sermons, over the past six months. And it shouldn't at all be surprising that the miracle of our scriptures is that through the Holy Spirit, they're sustained through time. They, they are relevant. The pastor doesn't have to make them relevant. They are relevant. The human story, as much as our human stories, our human stories are unique, the human story and the God story that's played out in scripture is, of course, still found in our lives today. And so we come to God's creativity in Genesis chapter 21. This is a rough text. It's a rough text for a number of reasons, but it's especially rough on Father's Day. During Bible study this week, one of you, I can imagine, looking to redeem my selection of this text for Father's Day. Remember, 
I selected it, but only from the lectionary. One of you offered that I might focus on Abraham's faithfulness to God as a model for good fathering. And I appreciate that. And I do think Abraham is a good model for us, especially because of his faithfulness. But unfortunately, in this text today, Abraham isn't one to be modeled in this story. The soap opera worthy story isn't one where Abraham earns very many fatherhood points. Abraham has fathered a child that his wife is now telling him to reject because she, his wife, isn't the boy's mother. Even though Sarah was the one who told Abraham to have the child with the one that she had enslaved, Hagar. By this time, Sarah is done with Hagar and her son. She doesn't want to see them. She wants them out of her house now that she has a son of her own. She doesn't want competition for the title of firstborn. And she decides that they must go. And she tells this to her husband, to Abraham. Now, in a moment of conscience, Abraham is distressed at the notion of sending Hagar and his son away. But God tells Abraham, don't be afraid. Don't be distressed about this, he says. I'll take care of Hagar and the boy. The interesting thing here is that Abraham then really does model a strong faith, so strong that he seems to really throw Hagar and Ishmael out in a dangerous position. He's a man of wealth and resources, but instead of equipping the two of them with supplies or even servants and animals, he sends them off on their own with some bread and essentially a canteen of water. He sends them off into the desert. This is actually not Hagar's first time leaving the household of Abraham. It isn't her first time in the desert with her son. Earlier in Genesis, in chapter 16, Sarah is quite abusive toward Hagar, and Hagar runs away to the desert. She encounters God in the desert that first time. God asks what she's doing there, and she tells God that Sarah has mistreated her, and so she left. God then says some difficult words for her to hear. He says to this woman, go back to your abusive mistress and submit to her. This is some of the worst news God has ever given some of the most painful, and it's troubling. But then God tells Hagar that she's pregnant and that she's going to give birth to a son whom she is to name Ishmael. This is the first time in the Bible, the first time in the Bible that a woman is told that she would have a baby. We know we're going to hear many, many stories of women hearing from an angel or from God that they're going to have a baby. But this is the first. How amazing is it that God's good news, good news of a coming baby comes first to this woman who is a foreigner. This woman who is enslaved, mistreated, abused, and used. Hagar names God in that moment. She names God Elroy which means 
God who sees me. For those who are marginalized, the poor, the immigrant, the enslaved, the minority, the homeless, the lonely, being seen is incredibly transformative. El Roy, she calls him, the God who sees me. And so she listens to God and she goes back to Sarah. She gives birth to Ishmael and now here we are and she's going into the desert again. This time she's being tossed there, discarded, with very little food and water. She quickly runs out of both. Like desperate mothers have done throughout history, Hagar cries out to God and she weeps. The God who sees is also the God who hears. And El Roy, our text says, hears the cries, not of Hagar, but of her son. The text says, and God heard the voice of the boy. And then in response, the angel says to Hagar, those words that that now roll off of our lips after hearing them week after week. We've, we've heard them in six sermons this year alone. The words of the angel in the face of our most difficult moments, in our confusion, in our despair, in our utter hopelessness, the words the oppressed and the enslaved and the marginalized cling to even when they can't believe them, the words uttered by angels and by Jesus and by parents to children afraid in the dark, the words of our faith, but also the words of our hope and of last chances and of last resort. I wonder if they're on the tip of your tongue. If they are, say with me those words of this angel. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. In the depths of Hagar's pain, she hears these words. She's heard them before, the first time she was in the desert and in pain. Do not be afraid. And God sent her back to Sarah. But God sent her back to Sarah with a promise that, that her son would be born, that she was pregnant, an announcement of her impending motherhood. And here, now, later, when she's facing the end, God says, do not be afraid. And there in that moment appears a well with water coming out of it. And she gives her son some water to drink. This woman and her child, they were the result of Abraham and Sarah's disobedience, their lack of faith. God specifically told them in our text last Sunday, that they didn't follow God's instructions, that they didn't listen to God. And God says that Ishmael is not the son that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah. There's really no question about it in Scripture. Ishmael is not the preferred child, even to God. It's Isaac upon whom God will build the people of Israel. Even with their disobedience... And even with their cruelty to Hagar and their blindness to her suffering, God still looks upon them and their nation with favor. And yet, and yet, here 
we see that God is creative in the way that he takes the pain of being an outcast and the pain of being enslaved and the pain inflicted even by a well-intentioned Abraham. God takes the pain and God sees the one experiencing the pain. God sees them. This God who sees, El Roy, God sees them and God cares for them. God was with the boy, it says in verse 20. This is such a powerful statement. For those who are on the margins, those who are oppressed, and and for all of us when we're overwhelmed or lonely or feeling smothered by the uncertainty and the unknown, we see that God doesn't just say, do not be afraid. God sees us and God is with us. The God of promises. The God of promises is a God who creatively works to bring goodness and mercy even where the world and the people in it seem more inclined to division and alienation. When we begin to see those around us who are suffering, those who are suffering racial bias and discrimination, those who are outcast by society or seen as the other, those who are without power in society, the poor, those who wonder if their lives matter, when we begin to see the suffering of the world, it is then that we see the ones who God sees. It is then we are with the ones whom God is with. It is then that we hear with our God the cries of the Ishmaels. That's in fact what Ishmael means. The one God hears. The one God hears. But it's also important to recognize that hearing and seeing Ishmael and Hagar, seeing the oppressed, doesn't mean that God no longer sees Sarah and Abraham. Indeed, it is very much the opposite. There is room in God's embrace. There is room in God's sight and in God's ears and in God's presence. There is room. And God pointing to that well in the desert When Hagar has no more water or food for her son, God pointing to that well and saying that her life matters, that her son's life matters, takes nothing away from Sarah and Abraham and all that they have. Saying that Hagar's life matters doesn't mean that Sarah's life, that Abraham's life, that Isaac's life doesn't matter or that their lives matter any less. And it doesn't take away from their struggles and even their own great pain. But in that moment, when she's cast out into the desert, it is Hagar and her son that need to know that they matter. As we take steps as a church, especially in the coming weeks and months, steps that might feel confusing and even painful for some, as we take steps to learn about the experience of those who have been the Hagars and the Ishmaels of our society, 
we do not diminish God's love for any of God's creation. Frankly, we don't have that ability. What we have is the ability to learn about God and to learn who God loves and try to do the same. And so there is good news in this strange text. Good news for us this day as we begin a journey together, a journey of learning and of seeing and of hearing, a journey which God modeled for us in the desert with Hagar and a journey on which the angel looks at you and at me and says those words that are so important. Do not be afraid. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.